So this morning we continue where we left off last week in this book of Matthew. And if you remember, the final section that we went over last week was obviously verses 23 through 25 of chapter 4. And there we saw for the first time in the book of Matthew, him give us sort of a summary of what Jesus' daily, regular ministry looked like in history. And what did it look like? Well, if you remember, we saw that Jesus, quote, went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then we heard about how Jesus healed a bunch of people. And then finally, in verse 25, we even saw that great crowds started to follow Jesus because everything he was doing. And so, and so that's where we left off. And we review that because basically then what now happens here in Matthew chapter 5 is if you want to think about it this way, so Matthew in a sense now is going to take us into what he described in the previous paragraph. We're taken into Jesus' ministry. And we know that that's what's going on here because quickly remember verse 25 talked about the crowd starting to follow Jesus. And now here in chapter 5, notice the first thing the Bible says is, quote, seeing the crowds. And not only that, but remember, Jesus was said to have been teaching in his ministry last week. And now here in chapter 5, verse 2, we're going to see the Bible say, and he opened his mouth and taught them the same word. And so in short, that's where we are now in the gospel according to Matthew. We've seen a lot about who Jesus is, and we've seen a summary of his ministry, but now we're finally entering into what was going on in Jesus' ministry. And and what was going on, or, or what do we see when we enter in? Well, what we see right away is this famous section of scripture, which has been titled, The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, which consists of everything here in chapter 5 all the way through the end of chapter 7. And so three chapters, all consisting of Jesus' teaching. And now concerning the Sermon on the Mount, we'll we'll introduce it more and talk about it more this morning. But from the get-go, just so you know, as for the title, the Sermon on the Mount, that official title is nowhere in the book of Matthew or in the Bible as a whole. And so this is just a phrase we've made up simply because Jesus is teaching on the mountain or really on the hill. But either way, whatever we call this, what is significant is that, again, this is a long teaching from our Lord. And in fact, it's one of the longest sections of Jesus' teachings in the whole Bible. And not only that, but it's probably the most talked about and written about and even debated sections of Jesus' teachings in the Bible. And why? Well, because there's a lot in here. And because in this one section, we get to see with a lot of detail what Jesus' teaching was like and what made him so unique. For example, in just these three chapters, we have Jesus' famous teachings like the Beatitudes. Right? We have a handful of Jesus' reinterpretations and applications from the Old Testament. We hear Jesus' famous call in here for us to love our enemies. We get Jesus' instruction here on his prayer, uh, on prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Right, we hear Jesus talk about anxiety and God's provision. We're told famously by Jesus in here to judge not that you be not judged. We hear Jesus to invite us to ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find. We're introduced in this section to what we now call the golden rule. 
We hear Jesus warn about false teachers, false believers, and finally in here we're even told that famous analogy of building our house on the rock instead of the sand. And that's just a sample. There's even more that is in here all in these three chapters from Jesus. And so again, this is a famous section of scripture and a beautiful one. And to be honest, I think it's one that's often easily misinterpreted as well, which we will talk about later. But for us, church, all that said, I just want us to feel, hopefully, the privilege we have of God's word here in being able to hear from Jesus like this. (laughs) Because think about it, all else put aside, simply stated, what we are starting together this morning is one of the longest sections of scripture in God's word where the God-man himself, our Savior and King in his ministry, just taught us (laughs) for three chapters. And so let's make it our goal to dig in together in our time here from Matthew 5 through 7 and marvel at and learn and be encouraged by or even be challenged by whatever Jesus has to say to us. But all it said, so that's where we are here in Matthew 5. But that then brings us to our outline for how we will begin this Sermon on the Mount passage together this morning. And so as you heard in the scripture reading, uh, we'll be in just verses 1 through 12 this morning. We will introduce the Sermon on the Mount and look at the Beatitudes. But then, just so you know, we're also going to pick up on the Beatitudes next week. And the reason for that is because, to be honest, well, I initially planned on covering all of the Beatitudes this week, but then I realized it'd probably be better for us to spend two weeks on them. And so this week, we're going to look at these introductory verses here to the Sermon on the Mount. We'll look at the Beatitudes from more around 30,000 feet, but then next week, we will dive more into each Beatitude itself. But anyway, so that's where we're going the next two Sundays. But all that said, concerning our structure together this morning, we'll have two main sections together asking two main questions. Very simply said, two main questions. And as for what they are, first we'll look at verses 1 through 2, and we'll simply ask there, and so what is Jesus really doing here with this Sermon on the Mount? And we already did talk about that a little bit this morning, but we'll look at that in more detail because I think it'll sort of help us understand how we should apply this whole sermon to our lives. And so that'll be our first section. And then second, we'll move on to Jesus' first topic in his sermon. And we'll simply ask him, what's going on here with these Beatitudes? Meaning, why would Jesus start with these Beatitudes and what are they all about? And there again, we'll look more generally at the Beatitudes and we'll look more specifically at each verse next week. And so that's our roadmap this morning. Simply put, first, what's going on here with this whole Sermon on the Mount? And second, what's going on with these Beatitudes? But all it said, so let's then dive in together, church, and begin our first section. And here again, we're basically just asking, what is Jesus doing with this whole Sermon on the Mount? And to answer that, we'll begin with just verses 1 and 2. So look down at your Bibles. You can see Jesus' actual teaching begins in verse 3. But the Bible introduces this long Sermon on the Mount like this. Verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and we'll stop there. So to start in answering what's Jesus doing here in the Sermon on the Mount, first in verse 1 again, notice that Jesus does this as he's seeing the crowds. And in basic, that then shows us that he is teaching this to a lot of people. And then notice right after that, the Bible says that Jesus, quote, went up on the mountain. And now, to be honest, that may not be the best translation for us in English because probably most of us hear mountain and we probably think of some big mountain. 
But the truth is, this is more of a hill, and we actually don't know exactly where this is because it's unspecified here in Matthew. But either way, so Jesus sees these crowds. He, he goes up on a large hill, and then what does he do? Well, interestingly, as you can see, his disciples come to him after he sat down. And that's then where we actually start to see what's more officially going on here. Because in short, that idea of sitting down back then was a sign that a rabbi was about to teach. And in fact, it's, it's very similar to now a pastor getting behind a pulpit today. And so Jesus is sitting, is communicating that he's really about to teach. Which then finally, that's all confirmed right in verse 2 where Matthew says explicitly, and he opened his mouth and taught them. And now in that, it makes sense that Matthew says Jesus taught them. But as to why the Bible adds that, and he opened up his mouth, well, in, v- in brief, that's actually probably significant as well. Because in the Old Testament and the New Testament a few times, that phrase, someone opening their mouth, is used emphatically to get across that whatever the person's about to say, it's really important. And that then makes sense that Matthew is using that here. Because you can feel the force. Because, because we know so far in this book of Matthew who Jesus is. Right? He's the one the Old Testament has always been pointing to. Who's, he's the Savior who's going to save his people from their sins. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's Emmanuel, God with us. He's revealed the Trinity to us. And he's now been around this earth for around 30 years. And the point is, and yet now for us, he's finally going to speak in detail. Now we're finally going to hear him teach. Now he's finally going to open his mouth. And so that's verses 1 and 2 here. And that's how the Bible simply introduces the Sermon on the Mount. Which leads us, though, to ask, okay, so that's what Jesus is about to do. But how should we interpret what Jesus is going to say to us? And to be honest, it's that which I think leads to a lot of misunderstanding on this whole section of Scripture. And it's why I want us, before we dig into this section of Scripture for the next weeks together, to have this whole first section where we're sort of introducing the Sermon on the Mount. Because think about it, in the text, it's clear Jesus is teaching. But the question is, well, what is he teaching about? And obviously the surface level answer to that is what we'll see and we're going to see some of the topics we already quickly listed this morning. And yet still the deeper question is, but why is Jesus teaching on these things? Meaning, yes, he's going to say all these things, but how should you and I hear these things? And in answer to that, there's really three main ways, three main ways that people have taken and applied this whole Sermon on the Mount. Three main ways. Number one, Some people in traditions read the Sermon on the Mount and think that this is basically Jesus giving us instructions that he knows we can't keep. Instructions that he knows we can't keep. And therefore, believing that, people think that we're mainly supposed to read all this and just think, I I can't do this. And so I need to be saved by Jesus. Or, number two, on the other hand, some people read this and see Jesus as basically giving us a new law with his main goal, therefore, giving us ethics, almost like a new Moses. Well, then, though, number three, other people read this and they just see Jesus as basically reinterpreting and reapplying the Old Testament, all because of some things we're going to read about even in chapter five. And so they read it merely or mainly as an extension of the Old Testament. 
And so in summary, the options include, number one, this sermon is to point us to the fact that we can't do this. Number two, this is to be our new law. Or number three, this is mainly the Old Testament but revamped. And so the the question is, well, which is it? How are we supposed to understand and apply what Jesus says here? And to be honest, I think that the answer is, is a little bit of all three of those. Since, since Jesus does know that we can't keep this perfectly in this life, and yet he also does intend for us to follow this as we follow him. And all of this isn't totally new since it is the Old Testament revamped. And so it is a little bit of all three of those. And yet, that said, even more so, I think that honestly, mainly or just using only those three categories is missing something huge. Talking in just those ways about this sermon, I think, is missing the overarching point. And why? Well, because I think there's a better way of talking about how we should read the Sermon on the Mount. And it's a way that takes into account everything we've seen in Matthew so far. And I think it's really the most natural way to read it. And and so what is it? Well, in brief, first, let me just say I'm indebted to scholar D.A. Carson for this. This isn't something I want you to know I didn't make up or come up on my own. But in short, what Carson argues and why I think this is the best way for all of us to read this and apply this is to think about all this mainly with the ideas of the king and his kingdom in mind. The king, who is Jesus, and his kingdom, which he calls the kingdom of God or sometimes the kingdom of heaven. And in brief, I think that's the best way to interpret the whole Sermon on the Mount. And for you and me, as we go, it's the best way to apply everything here in our lives. Because that means that, in short, as we read this, we're mainly supposed to know that the one talking here is the king himself. And therefore, he's mainly talking about his kingdom. And he's mainly talking to those in his kingdom. It's that simple. This is the king talking about and especially talking to those in his kingdom. And the reason this fits really well and is why, and why it's the most natural way, I think, to read this is because first, think about it. So far in Matthew, remember Jesus being the king is one of the main themes that we have seen. He's the savior king who has come. And therefore, as he speaks and teaches, We're supposed to assume he's teaching as that Savior King. And so that's implied. And so that fits in Matthew so far. But then also to confirm this, as we'll see, this idea of kingdom is also one of the main themes of this sermon and really of all of Jesus' teachings. And in fact, see this for yourself in just a few places if you want to look down because I think it will help. So to begin, if you can, first just look down at that first verse, chapter 3 of chapter 5, or verse 3 of chapter 5 here. This is the first sentence in Jesus' whole sermon. And what does he bring up here? We'll quote, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so as you can see, this is a message from the king about those in his kingdom. And then skim to verse 10 there. At the end, Jesus again there mentions having the kingdom of heaven. And then skim quickly, if you can, to chapter 5, verse 19. Verse 19. Because there you can see at the end of verse 19, Jesus again talks about those in the kingdom of heaven. And then quickly just skim a little further ahead, if you will, to chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10. Where, as you know, we're famously told in the Lord's Prayer... That part of our prayer is to be your kingdom come. 
Which then finally, if you skim ahead to the section on anxiety in chapter 6, verse 33, chapter 6, verse 33, you can see there that Jesus summarizes his whole point in that section by saying that we're to seek first the kingdom of God. And now more could be said in this sermon to prove all of that. But in brief then, again, church, this is the king here. He's talking about and talking to those in his kingdom. That's how we should read and apply all of this. Which I know, slowing down for a second, that may sound like a lot or just some heady technicality. But, but when you think about it, this actually does matter a lot for you and me. Uh, for you and me in how we read and apply all of Jesus' teachings. Because thinking about it like this, that means that as we read the Sermon on the Mount, we can't read it and read the morality in here and think that Jesus is giving us things we must do to rule our own lives or especially to save ourselves. Jesus isn't doing that. And that's important for us to point out because the reality is often people and especially religious people do tend to read the Sermon on the Mount like that. They see Jesus giving these instructions and they therefore assume that his instructions are here telling us how we have to merit our way into heaven or earn our salvation. Because that's just typical religion 101. That's how we think. But that's just not the case. Rather, think about it. Jesus knows he's the king. <laughs> he knows that he's the savior. And that means in terms of how we get into the kingdom, the gospel's still true. We rely on Jesus and what he did alone as he's the savior king. And yet, it's also true that if we are saved in the gospel, meaning if we trust and love this king and if we're in his kingdom, then we will want to follow him more. And in short, that's then how we should read this in all of Jesus' teachings. This is our king. And, and we want to follow him and obey him the best we can. But why? Well, not to earn our way into the kingdom. We aren't our own saviors. He's the savior. But instead, because we are saved by the king. Because we love the king. Because we love his ways. And because we want to live even more in step with the kingdom. And not only that, but we want our world to live more in step with the kingdom, which is why we spread Jesus' gospel and his teachings. And it's why one of the things that our king taught us to pray is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it's already done in heaven. And so church, that's our first section in introducing the Sermon on the Mount. In summary, this is our king, mainly talking to those who know him and already in his kingdom about his kingdom. And now that doesn't mean that people not in his kingdom weren't listening back then. They, they were, of course. And he knows that. And still today, people aren't, who aren't in Jesus' kingdom can hear Jesus' teachings and learn some things from Jesus. But still, above all, one last time, this is the Messiah, Savior, King, talking about and talking to those in his kingdom. Which, if we do trust in Jesus in his gospel church, that is you and me. And so that's our first section, answering, so what's Jesus doing here in the Sermon on the Mount? 
But that finally now leads us to our second section this morning. And here we'll move on to what Jesus teaches first in his sermon. And that, of course, is these Beatitudes. And again, we will go through each Beatitude next week in a lot more detail. But for this morning, again, we're we're more briefly just asking, so what's overall going on here with these Beatitudes? And we ask that because think about it. It is fascinating that this is how Jesus begins his sermon. He could have opened with so many topics And yet, this is how he starts, with these Beatitudes. And so what we'll do now is we'll first just read all of verses 3 through 12, and then we'll talk about them as a whole. And so first, look down at verses 3 through 12, and on these Beatitudes, I know for most of us, we've probably heard these many times before. But I do encourage you, put yourself in the scene. Put yourself in the shoes of the first listeners. Because the Savior King has come. He's on top of the hill. He just sat down. The crowds are listening to him. He opens his mouth. And here's how he starts. Verses 3 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So again, next week we will dig into each one of those in more detail. But overall, for this week, now just notice with me three important overarching things about these Beatitudes. Three important overarching things. First, we can't downplay and we really need to emphasize how the first word out of Jesus' mouth in this whole sermon, and obviously the first word in each of these Beatitudes, is that word blessed. Blessed. And, and really, that is amazing. Because on that word, just so you know, this is the Greek word makarios, makarios, which in basic can be translated as blessed or approved or honored or happy. And it has all of those meanings because in essence, this word has really two aspects to it, two aspects. First is the objective part of the word, the objective part. And that just means that this word is talking about how the person who is this is objectively blessed. It's something true outside of them, not just something in their feelings. And in the Bible's context, the blessed person is the person who essentially is approved of by God accepted by God. Or to say it most simply, the blessed person is essentially someone whom God looks on and smiles, which is amazing. They're blessed. They're honored, approved. And so that's the first aspect of this word. But then second, this word makarios can even be translated as happy because it also has a subjective aspect to it as well, a feelings aspect to it. And this builds on the objective aspect because if the objective outside of us aspect of this word is that God genuinely approves of me, then the subjective feeling becomes, and because of that, I have genuine happiness. And the point is, that's the word that Jesus decides to use over and over. 
And for us, concerning these beatitudes then, I think we really need to be careful to hear that word blessed that way. Because let's be honest, on its own, that word blessed can sort of just sound like nice-sounding religious mumbo-jumbo. But it's not. Instead, really, in each beatitude, Jesus the King is saying, blessed are, meaning these are those who are approved, who are objectively blessed, and these are those who have true happiness. That's how Jesus begins his whole sermon. And, and by the way, as, as a quick side note, this word blessed in the Latin translation of the Bible is also where we get that word beatitude from. Beatitude, because in the Latin word for blessed, which is the translation they read for hundreds of years early on, the Latin is beatus. Beatus. And from that we get beatitude. And now knowing that may seem like a small thing, but it actually may be more important for some of us in this room because that means, to be super clear, it means that a beatitude from Jesus is not attitudes you should be like. The word beatitude doesn't come from the attitudes you should be like. And maybe you've heard it that way, but that literally is just a coincidence and a pun in English. And I think that actually can be sort of misleading because that can make these sound mainly then about us. Or, or worse off, that can make it sound like Jesus here is starting off his sermon by saying, first things first, here's some attitudes you need to make sure you be like. But that's literally not his emphasis. Rather, the emphasis is Jesus saying, in my kingdom, here are those blessed by God. Here are those truly happy now and forever. Which quickly then applying all that to us, it is amazing, church, that our king starts off this way. <laughs> Just think about it. We each know our faults. We each know what we'd probably expect the almighty God and king to begin with is to reprimand us for all of our sins or, or at least to start off with a little more gloom. But instead, Jesus' first theme he wants to get across about his kingdom is the true blessedness and happiness of those in it. He starts off by saying over and over again, basically nine times, blessed and happy are these people. And the point then for us is, yes, we, the, we should in a sense then hear these beatitudes and want to align ourselves more with them. But above all, Really, the point is, let's realize if we are in Christ and in his kingdom, this is true of us. We have true blessedness in God's approval. We have a unique happiness in Jesus and in his kingdom. And so that's the first important overarching thing about the Beatitudes here, which leads us now, though, to the second. And for this, now notice, so if these are about blessedness before God and eternal happiness... Well then for us, you might have noticed that many of these beatitudes are far from what we'd expect in terms of blessedness and happiness. <laughs> some of the things that Jesus says here are in some ways even reversals of how we in our world think of happiness. And we see this, for example, in the first beatitude where Jesus plainly teaches that actually the poor in spirit are happy, which is like an oxymoron. Or we see in how it's not the self-assertive, self, self but it is the meek who are one day going to inherit the whole earth. 
Or finally, we see it especially in Jesus' last beatitude where he tells us that we are blessed and we can rejoice even in the midst of persecution. And now more could be said on all those and we'll talk about them again more next week. But quickly, I just want us to see that overall, overall aspect of all of this because this then does also show us that again, one of the things that Jesus is teaching us here right away is that blessedness and happiness in his kingdom often isn't what we would expect. And that's why, church, we need to listen to and follow Jesus our King. It's why we need to follow not our own hearts and feelings or what we think would God, God would expect, ex- accept or what we think would bring happiness to ourselves, but we really need to listen above all to what Jesus tells us. And this is especially true and practical for you and me because think about it, what Jesus is seeing here, saying here should make us realize that we in our lives may try our hardest with our wisdom to try to figure our own lives out. We may try our hardest to consider what's best. But honestly, we just don't. <laughs> we just don't know. We're sinners. We're, we're fallen in how we act and think. But the good news, Jesus isn't. And so the point is when Jesus, the perfect king, shows up and he starts talking about true blessedness, we should expect it to rock our boats a bit. We should expect it to be a little counterintuitive to how we naturally think. Because again, yes, we may think that we know what's best or brings the most happiness for us. But implied here is that we don't. But Jesus is our creator. He designed us. He's our God and king. And so we can listen to him to find out what we're all truly looking for. So that's the second aspect of these Beatitudes here, which finally leads us to the third and last important overarching thing about these Beatitudes. And this now is just by starting to notice how these Beatitudes work or how they're structured, if you will. Because in one sense it's obvious, but we don't want to miss it. And so as for how they're structured, as we already talked about, notice for each one, Jesus starts with blessed are, and then he gives a certain trait or characteristic. But then finally, and very interestingly, Jesus to end each one gives a for or because clause. Skim down, you can see it for each one. Blessed are these sorts of people because... And slowing down for a second, I know we're used to hearing these, but it is unique that Jesus does that. Because he could have just had the blessed are these sorts of people part without any for or because clause, and that would have been totally fine. But instead, for each beatitude, Jesus goes out of his way to say, blessed are these people because. And now to be clear, on these because clauses, we need to know that Jesus isn't giving merit clauses here. He isn't giving earning clauses, meaning none of them are you are so blessed and happy because you did this or earned this. That's not what he says. Rather, if you skim down, notice for each beatitude, what Jesus does is he says that we're blessed in the kingdom and then he gives a promise concerning why we're blessed. You see that? For example, verse 5, blessed are the meek because they shall inherit the earth. Or blessed are the pure in heart because they shall see God. Or Jesus even gives a present tense promise in verses 3 and 8 where he says, because there is right now the kingdom of heaven. 
And all those promises are significant because thinking about why then Jesus started his whole sermon with these Beatitudes, we see that yes, he's talking about true blessedness and happiness. And and we also see that Jesus often reverses the way we think about true blessedness and happiness. But even that's not it. Because also apparently what Jesus is doing is he right away wants to give his people. He right away wants to give us promises that are true for us in his kingdom as well. Promises that we church should hold on to. And on these promises, I I do think that because we so often read these beatitudes and focus on us and what we want to be more like, we can easily miss the beauty of this. Meaning, think about it, we, we often read these beatitudes and primarily focus on the first half of each verse. We read these and we become so consumed on how we want to be more poor in spirit and meek and merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers and more. And to be clear, all of those things is, are good and we will talk about them more next week. But, but I do encourage you, just, just skim down and look only at the second half of each beatitude. Because doing that, what, what, what do we see? Well, a, a list from Jesus of amazing promises. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. They shall be called sons of God. And, and the point is, that's then also what Jesus is communicating here at the beginning of his whole message. And it's how we should receive these beatitudes. Because yes, we do want to be more like these characteristics. But again, if we read these beatitudes and only focus on what we should do, then we are really missing out on what our king is saying. Because one last time, Jesus here, church, is not mainly giving us a list of things we need to now go do. But he is telling us who are those who are truly blessed. And now yes, True blessedness corresponds with the way that we, we are once we are saved and in his kingdom. We'll talk about that more next week. It's why those in Jesus' kingdom are to some degree like these things. But even more so, the point here is true blessedness exists because our great king has made some incredible promises to us. Blessed are these sorts of people because they will receive these promises. That is exactly what Jesus is saying. And finally then, as for these promises, let's believe it, church. Our king will bring each of these to fruition. And so that's our passage, church, just introducing the Sermon on the Mount and giving an overview of these Beatitudes. And and so now as we come to a close... I know we didn't get to cover in too much detail the the sermon as a whole or we didn't get to talk much about each beatitude. But I still do pray that for all of us now as we leave here this morning, we not just understand this passage of scripture more, but especially above all, I hope we are all more, a little more amazed at Jesus because of what we saw this morning. Amazed at Jesus. Because honestly, to make this personal, that's, that's what I came away with this week as I studied the Sermon on the Mount and as I prepared this message. And it's not what I expected. Because as I said, this whole section of Scripture is one of the most written about and discussed and debated portions of the Bible. And in a way, it often is interesting to see what people say about what's here. And yet, what I, what I came to see, and what I hope we all came to see together this morning, is that what we can often miss in the midst of all of this teaching is we can focus so much on dissecting what Jesus says that we forget about Jesus himself. 
We can analyze so much of this teaching that we forget about the teacher. We can fixate on the sentences that we forget about the one speaking. And so here in just this introduction, I hope that all of us, we just more personally see more about the speaker himself, more about Jesus himself this morning. Because one last time, remember, Jesus didn't need to teach us so graciously like this. He didn't need to start off his whole message with these statements of blessedness. He didn't need to right away care so much about our happiness. He didn't need to lavish us with such a list of promises. But he did. And why? Well, because church, this is our God. This is our King. And so even in just what he decides to talk about, he shows us he really does care about us. He really does love us. He really is a good king. And for us then, it is such a blessed and happy thing to be in his kingdom. Amen? Let's pray.